Hello, everyone. Now, this episode is going to focus on the personal topic of mental health, personal and kind of sensitive topic. So having found myself as an advocate of uh, mental health and someone who cares about mental health, I would like to say that in 2019, buoyed by um, that organization that I will talk about later in the episode, um, Florida APSI, I ended up uh, becoming a lot more open about my struggles with mental health issues. And it's uh, something that uh, while it has allowed me to express my talented self in certain ways, it is not something that I am that proud of. As it is, it has made people around me concerned about me. It has made myself concerned about myself. But if I can say one thing is that it has opened up my eyes and my mind to the struggles that other people go through, which may go unnoticed by individuals who aren't completely intact with relating to someone who feels like life is but a trap and that they need to get out of the trap in any which way possible. So there is something pretty personal that happens and I won't go into any details really, but Instead of just opening this uh, episode off with the traditional usage of I'm not in love, uh, because I think that it doesn't really uh, capture how strong the theme of this episode is, um, I've decided instead to recite a lyric that I wrote which if I had anyone who would um, collaborate with me on turning this into an actual recorded song, I would have uh, played it at the beginning of this episode. Instead, there was something that I wrote about the responsibilities we all have as individuals, but how much is too much of a responsibility? How much is it to tell yourself, well, maybe, you know, maybe you can only do so much to one person. And maybe whatever you do may not, may have little to do with what that person is going through. 
And it's not meant as a slight against anybody around the individual, because as I say, you can only do so much. It's the title of what I wrote. And basically it's, it's really the idea that if someone is going through a very, very tough time, do not fault yourself and do not put yourself in the firing line of responsibility someone does something horribly tragic to themselves it shouldn't be automatically well i could have done more or i could have done greater things or i could have no not at all you could have done as i will say later in the episode it really doesn't matter what stage that person's in it really doesn't matter sometimes what that person is, how that person is, who that person is. What matters is the fact that at least when you were there in that person's life, you did what you could do to help out that person or you did what you could do to make sure that that person, through whatever years they've had in life, has had at least a decent one from any outside observations. But, you know, there are some feelings that are so strong, that are so enveloping, that it really doesn't matter what one says, what one does. And sometimes it can go into that life is but a trap mentality, where you just feel like you have no way out. And you have really no way in to calm that part of yourself down. Now, perhaps the most, uh, the hardest thing to say to anyone is to say that, you know, while things may get better, things may also stay the same in certain areas and certain regards. You know, they haven't discovered a cure for anxiety. They haven't discovered a cure for depression. There are treatments, but you know, it's it's all and any cure may reach deeper into experimental territory. So, without further ado, because I've taken so much time with this opening monologue. I will recite, you can only do so much. We can try to have nets and strings to keep people from doing nasty things to themselves, but we can't do everything. We can talk a good game, give a good time, but whatever the person wants is on their line. As much as we want to help, we can only do so much. And yes, tragedies can happen. Struggles may be lost. Unfortunately, in our lives, there may be a cost. All we can do is offer our value and our touch. With anything, we can only do so much. There's so much in life to reap and enjoy. You think that everybody will have endless joy, but there are those who are so scarred inside. We try to convince ourselves everything is fine. We may not understand the depressed mind, but whatever they do, we must try to find and understand. It's not a coward's way out. It's so powerful. And sometimes I don't know what to do with it inside. We can only do what we must do to see our lives through. 
For many years, I felt the urge to commit, to give up, stop, desire to quit, but there's something in my mind that keeps me going. I've seen the demons in the darkened flesh. I've seen the chaos, carnage, and mess. We can pretend they don't exist, but that isn't true. Tragedies can happen. Struggles may be lost. Unfortunately, in our lives, there may be a cost. All we can do is offer our value and our touch. If anything, we can only do so much. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode. My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Sir Patrick Stu. I I mean, and my name is Merrick Egbert. So this is the official podcast of the Ellis for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name. And Merrick and I are sadly both terrible golfers. And isn't that true? But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not on the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And you're also a part of our secret calendar of great people. (laughs) Nobody knows that, but, but you're on some secret calendar of great people. Maybe it's all in my head. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, that's why it's a secret. But unfortunately, I'm not on that calendar. But when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gas of each department like glue. I am also autistic. So this is our 14th episode of the podcast, Mental Health and Autism, which features a fantastic interview, featured a fantastic interview with uh, Dr. Kim Riviccio, part of our growing mental health apparatus. I would like to thank her for being such a great person to interview for this podcast. Anything you want to say, Dr. Chinook? Yes, please. I would like to give a special thank you to Dr. Riviccio for a very fun and informative interview. She knocked it out of the park. That's great. And we didn't even have to use any uh, bumper cars <laughs> or balloons or any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, that's overrated anyways. So as usual, what we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you four autism fans. Now I'm gonna start with some news and updates about the foundation and the wide world of autism. So first of all, we want you all to make sure to check our four autism podcast website For episode 13, where we interview John Donvan and Karen Zucker, creators of the In a Different Key, the Story of Autism book and movie. They are both musts for anyone who wants to learn more about the history of autism. Next up, Mother's Day or Mom's Day, because, you know, I have a speech impediment on my TH, as some people have already pointed out. 
So it was a wonderful Mom's Day. I would like to take this time to thank all the moms who have offspring with autism. And I would like to also take the time to tell them that no matter what situation you are in, Dr. Shinnok and I acknowledge that the moms out there worked very, very hard and with absolute love for their children with autism, and we both appreciate it. So in my case, my mother, my mom was 30 when she had me in 1986, and she has always yearned to understand me and to instill in me a greater sense of confidence in myself, even with all the difficulties and struggles I faced. She was the one who introduced me to the Beach Boys, the first group, the first music group I got into. It's also the first concert I ever saw. She also took me to classes which helped with my motor skill delays, was there to figure out more about the evolution of my diagnosis, and has always been more open about what my diagnosis means to me. For this past Mom's Day, I went with her and my, and my dad to the west coast of Florida. We ate at fantastic restaurants, including a few Tex-Mex places, got to survey a state park, Koreshian State Park, which was built on the foundations of a utopian vision. We also got to go to the bamboo trail where the bamboo will make sounds straight out of, our, out of a horror movie. For our proposed Mo Mom's Day dinner, we went to a continental place called the Vine Bistro in the heart of Wellington, Florida. And I got to give her two sea of possibilities, trinkets, which I thought would look great in the condo of my parents. <laughs> so, Nate, here's a two-party. You didn't expect to get questions this early. But I figured that the audience would want to be more, you know, intimate with us and with you as an example. So how influential was your mom to your life and what did you do for Mom's Day? Well, first of all, Mom's Day has a very nice ring to it. And I think we might have to put a petition in our show notes to have the name officially changed to Mom's Day. But I digress. So first off, I'd like to give a special thank you to the countless amazing mothers in this world. Merrick and I appreciate all the strength and unconditional love that you devote to your children and families. One of my favorite quotes about mothers goes as follows. Life doesn't come with a manual. It comes with a mother. I'd like to share how thankful I am that my life came with a mother. My mom used to tell me she always knew she wanted to be a mom, and it showed. As a young child, and even during my less cute, more difficult years, I can't imagine feeling more loved and supported every day. My mom taught me and my sister's manners to treat people of all different backgrounds and upbringings with kindness and respect, and that it's okay to fall as long as you find your way back up. For Mother's Day, we took our dogs, our many dogs, all four of them, for a long walk, and we had a nice brunch at a restaurant called Lou Blue in Boca Raton. Uh, it's a great place. So I appreciate uh, the question on Mother's Day, and you know, we we again wish Happy Mother's Day to Mrs. Egbert. Mrs. Shannock, and all the great moms out there. We definitely do. All right. Next piece of news is about our inaugural game night 
which we started on May 14th. So once every month situated in the middle of the month on Fridays from 7 to 8.30 p.m., Howard Thomas, our employment coordinator, and I uh, will have a virtual game night for our adult services clients. Our last one on Friday, May 14th went very well and allowed us to learn more about each other. Our next one will be Friday, June 11th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. So we will see you there and I will provide all the information in this episode show notes. Now the last bit of news is about a work experience graduate who has done well. On a write-up related to our work experience program, we decided to spotlight one of our clients, Mr. Eric Mullengarden, who graduated from that program as a boon to the CAI firm, not CIA, CAI. They're like (laughs) the CIA, but they're spelled differently. (laughs) As an image verifier, which means that he will verify details related to license plates. And he will, of course, capture bad guys in the state of espionage, too. You never know. You just never know who may be a part of the CIA. I mean, CAI. We would like to congratulate Mr. Mullengarden, who landed his job in December of last year. Bravo and great luck to him. A wonderful person he is. Outstanding. For our great interview for the month of May, May is National Mental Health Awareness Month. Because of it, we would like to introduce our audience to our growing mental health program with one of our very own mental health counselors at E4A, Dr. Kimberly Revicio, who I would constantly call Dr. Kimberly Watterson Revicio, or Revecchio, because of how much I admire the Calvin and Hobbes uh, writer, Bill Watterson. I guess that that's why I kept on calling her that. (laughs) Anyways, to spare any sense of embarrassment, let me keep on talking about why Dr. Raficio is such a special individual. Prior to working as part of our mental health team, She had been the coordinator of our fabulous goals, Global Outreach Autism Learning Services Program, which would provide help to potential clients and families from all over the world. Lately, she had pursued her own goal from goals to using her background as a mental health counselor in the school system and special needs advocate to become one of our mental health counselors on staff taking in one-on-one clients and helping to facilitate our mental health support groups, including our group for teens, along with conducting a sibling support group entitled Sam Sib Stick Together, a virtual room that supports siblings of those on the autism spectrum. So thank you, doctor, for being on our show tonight. Let me ask you something before Nate begins with his questions. Is it Revicio or Revecchio? <laughs> Thank you, Merrick. You made me smile as always. Um, brilliant introduction. I appreciate it so very much. And you can always call me Dr. Kimberly Watterson Revicio. It's a lot of names. So I've, you know, kindly tried to make it easier and, and shorten the name. But it's actually the pronunciation is Revicio um, with the CH sound. So 
it's great to be here with you and Nate, thank you for having me on. So great to have you. Uh, we're very enthusiastic for this episode and I'm gonna start off the questions here. So first off, why did you feel drawn to work as a mental health counselor, particularly in the field of autism? Yes, you know, it's funny you ask this. I was just recently discussing this with a high school student, um, just in general, talking about career development. And I hadn't thought about it in quite a while, but I actually spent a lot of time um, after my bachelor's degree, you know, agonizing and just really thinking through what I wanted to do. And I, I considered actually law school and becoming an attorney or um participating in the University of Florida's counselor education program and doing a dual program of school counseling and mental health counseling. And I'm so glad that I chose the route I did for, for counseling. And, you know, I think what they had in common is I always had this desire to help others and just sort of genuinely believe in people and like people. And so looking back, I realized, I think, you know, the interest in law was actually the interest in being an advocate. Um, that was sort of my vision in that role. And, and I see the two combining right now. I see that, you know, as being a mental health counselor, so much of what we term mental health is actually a reaction to painful situations that people are encountering. And so we work with the client to sort of, you know, we process these feelings and life events. But part of the plight and part of autism is educating and advocating in society and, you know, helping the environment to be more understanding and um, adaptable and open and embracing. So I think that's sort of where that comes into play. Also, you know, after working in the school system and counseling young children, I was, my family was impacted and my own son was born. And at the time um, when he was diagnosed on the spectrum, they still had the term Asperger's. It's no longer used in the DSM manual for diagnosis, but at the time when he was a young boy, he was, he was given that he was diagnosed as well. And, you know, recognizing my experience was different than other parents and, you know, there's different needs and um, a different need for support, but um, going through the journey with him was, you know, just, it was a gift and it was a life-changing experience. And I think that's what ignited my passion for the field of, in autism specifically. Absolutely. I think your, your passion is on full display when we <laughs> see you conducting groups and working with clients at the foundation. And it makes sense given your background and, and um, what you've experienced as a family that you would put forward so much passion into this field. Um, I also I, I just want to highlight one, one point you made there, which was on not only the, the importance of the individual and mental health, but also if you can have an influence on, on their environment and how they're perceived. And uh, that's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems like an extremely important part of the therapeutic process is putting someone in a good surrounding environment to help them. Exactly. It absolutely is working with the individual to find a good support system and, you know, a community that is supportive of them. And, you know, sometimes it involves the family and family therapy and family counseling. And so it, it is essential. And, I, you know, that's one of the things I love about Els for Autism is that, you know, we have the programming, we have the treatments, and we also have the educational and the advocacy piece. And I think that 
they're all part of, you know, they're all essential. Yes, indeed. So some recent studies have estimated that up to 40% of individuals with autism also cope with an anxiety condition. And this is compared to about 19% in the general population who cope with an anxiety condition. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about some of the most effective interventions or just strategies for helping individuals with autism to manage their anxiety. Sure, absolutely. I think, you know, a piece of this kind of goes back to what we were just saying. There's such a large stigma and there's this social stigma and it leads to these feelings of isolation and, you know, determining our self-identity and things like this that, you know, increase that anxiety and increase those depressive symptoms. So, you know, depending on the individual's goals, you know, that is what would lead our, our therapy program, our therapy goals. And, you know, for our team, it's really important. There's, there's several of us on the mental health counseling team. And I think that we have some similarities in that we use evidence-based strategies, but before we go into the strategies, I, you know, it's important to first notice what is the, the individual's goals. You know, if it's something that's bothersome to the person, it's not an attempt to normalize behavior or an attempt to, you know, make someone do what we think is important for them. So the individual should establish their goals. You know, for example, if they're finding themselves stuck on a thought or, um, you know, feeling anxiety because they're stuck on a thought, then we would identify that as a goal so that we can decrease their anxiety. Um, so we use cognitive behavior therapy quite often. Um, and I, you know, that's, it's a really great strategy to help with anxiety and depression and the research supports these strategies. Um, you know, that involves the relationship between how we think and feel and behave and our, you know, our, the sort of triangular relationship. And it's based on, you know, that how we feel is just a reaction to, to life events. It's a natural process. There's no good or bad, um, there's just a, a natural reaction of a feeling. Sometimes they feel more positive or they feel more negative to us. Um, but the, the thoughts can actually change how you feel about certain things. So we look at identifying the thought behind that. And the thought can be a sort of negative pattern. Sometimes we have negative patterns. We all have it. It's very natural. And, um, you know, the therapist can help point those out or help the, the individual notice these sort of negative patterns of thought and how they're leading them to feel anxious and feel depressed. And so we do a lot of work with the thought behind um, different situations and sort of rewriting that thought and making it more helpful and not so maladaptive, but more helpful in our life. So a lot of what we do involves that. Um, we also uh, treat obsessive compulsive thoughts and help with managing that um, piece that some of our individuals experience. Again, everyone is different. Um, there are no two people alike. So it would depend on, you know, how, how this is impacting them. So we would work on managing that. Um, sometimes it's stress management strategies, you know, um, how to manage um, bre like breathing exercises, um, meditation, yoga, what the individual might be drawn to. We have, in, we have a lot of individuals that like music, um, things like that. So we would work on stress management strategies. 
and you know building skills because if we have if we feel like we have more skills then we tend to feel better and so sometimes it involves skill building and that can be social skills it can be self-advocacy skills uh, and sometimes we role play and we practice and we do exercises so that would be sort of a, a summary of what it might look like yeah i i really really like that you highlighted the importance of the individual in all this I mean, I gave a few statistics about, you know, how these populations are, um, you know, coping with conditions as a group. But uh, at the end of the day, when we're doing treatment, we're treating the individual, not the, the group that they are categorized under. So I really like that, that you mentioned that as the starting point for any treatment program or strategy that you would put forward. Right, exactly. It's so important because the, the, it has to be something that gets in the way of the person's well-being or their own personal um, joy. If it's something that, you know, it, it could be a strength that maybe is different than the rest of, of society, or maybe it's not a typical um, strength, but it's a strength and it can be a very beautiful thing. And that might be something that we build upon if it's, you know, standing in the way of their, of their happiness, or if they're feeling anxious about it, then that's when we, we want to attend to that and, and help them to manage that work together towards that. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just looking at a, a study earlier, actually on personality traits and certain propensities for anxiety and, and OCD, like you mentioned. And um, because you mentioned certain strengths, you know, uh, there, there is a correlation between certain conscientious uh, traits of personality and um, certain risk for developing some anxiety. So uh, there, there are some really good, good traits that can go, go hand in hand with that. Um, yes. And, you know, when you mentioned the research, I am so excited that you're, you know, doing so much with research because there, there isn't a lot of research yet with autism and mental health. It's really starting to become, you know, more of a topic and, and we need to know more. We need more research in this area. And with the pandemic, I think we became more aware of mental health, you know, as a community in general, as a global community. And so I think we need to, we need to get more information. Yeah, it's definitely trending in an encouraging direction. Yes, exactly. I agree. I agree. So bullying is unfortunately an issue for people who are different. And this is consistent for people with autism. It's something we've spoken about on the show before. It's a topic that's important to Merrick and I. So we wanted to get your thoughts on how important do you feel it is for parents to talk to their children about bullying and, and what can we do as a society to help try to mitigate this problem? Yes, I think that's such an important topic. And, you know, it does occur a lot to people on the autism spectrum. And, you know, the response will vary largely depending on, you know, the age of the child and the different skill levels and how they're experiencing the bullying. Um, I think it's important for verbal children or nonverbal children to be made aware of bullying. It can be done, you know, through verbal exchange or through social stories. And, 
we also, you know, as parents, I think it's helpful to establish from day one, a good working relationship with the teachers and the administration and have an open communication so that you can talk to them whenever something is occurring. As far as the parents, um, you know, listening and, and talking to their child, I think, you know, if we, if we listen to the little things, um, we can't, we can't do it a hundred percent. We're, we're busy working, making meals, you know, driving to school, things like that. But if we listen to as much as we possibly can of the little things, I think our children note that, and they're going to feel more comfortable talking about the big things. And, you know, it, when we hear something that's happening to our child, we become inflamed and we feel angry. And I think it's important to try to listen with a calm and supportive tone um, because we don't want to discourage them from talking. And as they talk to us, we can praise them, you know, for coming to us and we can uh, promote self-advocacy, talk to them about ways that they can respond, help them find a peer group um, to join and, you know, avoid the bully. And sometimes, you know, of course, we need to make the school aware very quickly. Yeah, as tempting as it may be to uh, become aggravated and jump to the defense of your child, uh, psychologically might not be the best uh, role to play as a parent. And Well, they're in an awkward position of they're telling you and, and they know you're probably going to have to do something, but you know, as a teen, they might not want you to say anything because now you're embarrassing me, but we do have to address it. So, you know, we want to just try to keep our calm and show them that we're listening and reflect back so that they'll come to us. And I think that that open listening relationship is so helpful. You know, if we do it during, like I said, during this sort of easy times, then it's more likely our child will come to us for the, the difficult things as well. That's a great point. And I appreciate your response. I think it's a, a message that, um, you know, still a lot of people need to, to learn some more strategies for, for helping out with this issue. I think, um, I think it's another area where there are improvements being made. Would you agree? I would. I think, you know, with education and awareness, then we, we have those improvements and, and we give people the language to talk about it and it's not taboo or stig, you know, stigmatized. So I do agree with you. Absolutely. I'm optimistic. As am I. Well, <laughs> I'll turn it over to my co-host now. Well, I know exactly how inspirational you are, uh, Dr. Revicio, um, you know, for you helping to facilitate, at least in the past, helping to facilitate our uh, adults with autism mental health support group program. And also you're, you're facilitating a teen mental health support group program which is absolutely fantastic. So my first question to you would definitely be, why is the relationship between mental health and autism so important? Mm, yes, that's a great question, Merrick. You know, I hear so many individuals that I work with on the autism spectrum express that they feel misunderstood. Um, adults will refer back to younger times and, and talk about how they just felt like people didn't understand and misunderstood them or made assumptions about them that were inaccurate. And so this leads to a lot of feelings of isolation. 
Um, I think individuals on the autism spectrum seek the things that everyone seeks, uh, you know, employment, independence, if possible, for, for many people, um, relationships, and things. So, you know, I think it's helpful for a clinician or a therapist who's working with this population to know the potential learning style and understand how autism might impact this individual and how it might impact their mental health. Um, again, recognizing that all individuals are different and, um, you know, that there are no two people alike and not to make assumptions. Uh, so, you know, this creates a relationship where the clinician does not make assumptions or have myths that lead to further misunderstanding. Um, you know, that the, again, the attempt is not to normalize, but for the person to meet the, the needs that they have, that they have stated. So I think, and, you know, for, for people on the autism spectrum who are nonverbal, mental health services can be done in collaboration with the family. It may look slight, you know, it may look different. It might involve parent training. It might involve the, the family unit. Um, so, you know, we're really, I think our team is really good at, um, you know, being creative and finding ways to make changes and impact the, the individual or their family. Yeah. I mean, I would say that probably mental health is in a way the best health, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's the, with the, with a appropriate state of mental health, you can basically persevere through anything, no matter what people throw at you, no matter what the world throws at you, you have appropriate mental health and you can see through all of that. So I, I really do appreciate your answer. Uh, next, next question that I have here is, what have you found to be the greatest revelations when treating people with ASD? Oh, I really like this question that you asked, Merrick. I think it's a great question. It, it's a treat. Um, I love the population that I work with, and I find that my clients with ASD are extremely real, and it's so refreshing and extremely honest and kind and very willing to work. And that's, that's a hard trait to find. So I find that commonality among my clients and, you know, the persistence and perseverance is quite inspiring. Uh, I've seen so many successes and improvements in the symptoms that the client was struggling with. You know, sometimes it can be improvements in self-regulation or decreases in anxiety or decreases in depressive symptoms. And, you know, the development of new skills and just the excitement behind that. And again, the willingness to work and to learn, it has been what I've noticed the most. So whenever you hear someone basically out of one of your sessions say that they've accomplished something, does that make you feel like the happiest person in the world? Because not only are you helping someone get through a tough time, but you're helping someone get through something in which so much of the population deals with mental health struggles and you ended up, you know, it may be small, maybe big, but it matters a lot to this person and you are either a witness to it or you have made some impact on that person's life to feel that way. That's a perfect summary. Um, that sums it up perfectly. That's exactly nail on head how I feel. It's the best feeling. And, 
you know, is noticing that that person made that accomplishment because they chose to, because they were willing to, and they were open to, you know, working on new strategies. It is the best thing to witness. It's a gift to witness. And it has this sort of effect of paying it forward where you, you watch the torch pass along because they take that and then they are a gift to giving it, you know, giving that knowledge to other people. And so it, it sort of multiplies and yes, it's wonderful. Okay, so the last question is, <clears throat> so I would like to basically steer everyone towards uh, the Ellis for Autism YouTube channel to uh, watch um, the stress management tips that uh, Dr. Raviccio here has uploaded. Uh, um, well, has, you know, she's basically the whole person, the whole package, and she gives some excellent tips. So I would like to ask her, uh, you've been known to be very helpful at advising people within the autism community about how to help the mental health component. Can you share a few of those here? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think our team, our mental health counseling team, um, join together in sort of these similar um, pieces of advice. And I think the first thing would be to establish your, your tribe, your village, you know, have your team of support people that make you feel good, that, that make you feel supported um, and advocate for yourself and your needs. And that might mean, you know, working on how to do that. It can be very uncomfortable. It can be very awkward. Um, but we, you know, we use, um, all of us use different strategies to teach advocacy and basically what that means and what your rights are and what accommodations mean and, you know, how to say it verb, like sentence stems of how to practice advocating for yourself, because it's awkward for all of us. Uh, and identify goals that are yours and, you know, seek the people who can support you in that. And, and sometimes that means, you know, trying different therapists out and the first time it might not be the right match for you. So part of advocating for yourself is finding that right fit. And it's okay to move on if it's not working for you after, you know, really, you know, thinking about that and, and spending some time on it. I would say to, to highlight your strengths and start there. Um, everyone has weaknesses and having autism does not, you know, mean that you have more weaknesses. It just means that you're, you have differences and within those differences, there are so many strengths. So start with those. And, and I would say, you know, the last thing would be just to, to know you're not alone and you have support. So, um, one of the coworkers, um, Kelly Coots of, uh, Recreation Services, the supervisor, she does this thing on Wednesday uh, from 4.45 to 5.45 called Connections Club. And, um, and I've been assisting her in that uh, group. And uh, what she does, she ends pretty much, she's been ending each episode with this declaration that everyone gets a chance to say. And that declaration is, I am awesome. Mm -hmm. I love it. So I'd like to hear from everyone here, not just me, I will say it first, and then I want to hear you say it, Dr. Rufficio, and then I want to hear you say it, Dr. Shinnok. 
just because you're all very, 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 uh, you know, you probably think of this as blasé, but I will think of it as a very important value affirmer. So I will start now and I will say this. I am awesome. Who wants to go next? I'll, I'll go next. Okay. And I just want to say that seeing it and speaking it is so important for believing it. I am awesome. Yes, you are. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love that. I think that's important, Merrick. And it's, it, it is uncomfortable right away. I'm, oh, how do I do this? I have to say this. And, you know, it reminds me of... Um, Jennifer Smith, our licensed mental health counselor, did an amazing thing with our group. Um, we did, we flooded our group with compliments where we, you know, we were to compliment each other and, oh, it's, it's powerful. It's awkward. It's all the feels and um, it's, it's wonderful. So I am awesome. All right. Well, it was great having this opportunity to interview you, Dr. Riviccio, and definitely wish you Best of luck in our definite travels together. Thank you so much, Merrick and Nate. It was an absolute pleasure to be here with you and thank you for all that you do. As always, it is time to go over today in the world of autism. Starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock and his fantastic research-oriented stories. All right, this is sure to be a doozy. And so because the topic of our show is mental health. We'll have articles and stories here that emphasize this topic. In this first one, I'd like to share some helpful tips on seeking out valuable mental health resources for well being management. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 20.6% of adults in the US had a diagnosable mental health condition in 2019. It's likely the case that this statistic underestimates the actual number of cases, given that countless people cope with mental health issues that remain undiagnosed and untreated. Barriers that prevent individuals from seeking care are both external, such as a lack of access to care in their geographic area and stigmatization of mental health issues, as well as internal, which would be issues of time, and knowledge of how to seek out treatment. Fortunately, there are many helpful and accessible resources that I'd like to advocate for today. So the American Psychiatric Association has a find a psychiatrist database that allows individuals to customize a search based on their geographic proximity, languages spoken by the psychiatrist, and whether the practice is in network with their insurance provider. And for all the resources that I'll be highlighting here, we've linked to their website in our show notes for today. Number two, the National Alliance of Mental Illness or NAMI has affiliate organizations in every state that offers workshops and group therapy sessions for those looking to get involved in a community of others experiencing similar mental health challenges. Numero Trace, the Medicine Plus database of the U.S. National Library of Medicine is a great resource for learning about side effects, drug interactions, or warn warnings 
related to medications that may be prescribed to you. I strongly encourage all to do research and become knowledgeable on the various treatments that you're being engaged in. If you need more comprehensive inpatient treatment for mood disorders or substance abuse, you can locate centers using the Anxiety and Depression Association of America site or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration site. Number five, if you are experiencing troubles with insurance coverage or finances, or just looking for immediate assistance, there are many great counseling sites on the web where you can connect with trained active listeners or even licensed therapists who can help you vent about issues and find solutions to your mental health concerns. A site that I was lucky enough to do an internship with back in my undergraduate years, way back in my undergraduate years, I should say, was you seven. Cups. <laughs> What's that? When you were 14, <laughs> you're not a grandpa. <laughs> Touche. Way, way back. <laughs> Many decades ago. But the site that I did this internship with was called sevencupsoftea.com. And it's a wonderful community for patients, students, providers, people of all different backgrounds. They can go to this site and connect and just speak to other like-minded individuals uh, as well as trained active listeners. And I've heard there's also a few other good sites for this purpose, like Talkspace and BetterHelp. So Merrick, are there any other resources that you'd like to acknowledge? And what do you feel has been helpful for you in your own journey? So I'd like to start out by saying, uh, friends like you are definite, really, really good mental health resources. And it's not just because I feel like I want to hug you after all of those resources you pointed out. Uh, I'm vaccinated fully, okay? And I think that Dr. Chinook is also fully vaccinated. So, you know, it, it will probably be safe, but still we want to exercise uh, a complete amount of caution on doing that. So I will just give him a virtual hug and I will just say he has been, he had done such a great job at highlighting resources within the community. By the way, uh, NAMI that he has mentioned before has a West Palm Beach office. So, okay, so re other resources that I would say uh, are the mental health support groups that we uh, have sort of uh, basically uh, started up from the ground up at the foundation and we started the Adults of Autism mental health support group two or three years ago. And the team mental health support group had its trial run. And now it's a it's sort of a regular program for us. So it, it's great that we're flourishing as not just individuals who wish to improve the lives of those with autism through the traditional means, but also through the means that, in, that make uh, probably one of the biggest differences in a person's life. And we have two fantastic, we have a whole bunch of fantastic counselors 
from Angela Ganari to up and coming Rita Woolley to Jen Smith to the person who we interviewed today, Dr. Kim Raviccio, all of them have been fantastic. And especially with the one-on-one sessions we have with Dr. Raviccio and with Jen Smith. And they have all been fantastic. Beyond that though, we also, um, I sit on the mental health task force uh, which is run through FAU CARD, the Center for Autism and Other Related Disabilities. And they have also been very proactive at tackling the issues of mental health. Uh, a, I'm a board member of Florida APSI, the Association for People Supporting Employment First, uh, about which is about seeking employment solutions for those with disabilities. And we've been partnering with SEDNET, uh, which I believe is the student. It, it's, it's a network that is based around students with emotional uh, disturbances and who of course need better mental health access. And we have partnered with them to do these different uh, conferences in May centered around mental health. It's called the Healthy Minds, Healthy Futures Conference. And I've been, I actually took what I learned about what it means to be open about your own experiences from the second to last conference. And I took that with me I opened myself up completely and I expressed all of the massive, you know, baggage that I've had to, uh, you know, trot along with for a while now. And it ended up getting the mental health support group kickstarted and it ended up getting me to become more and more intimate with the uh, autism community and with our community in general of providers, uh, experts, and other fantastic, valuable people whose purpose and existence is to make lives better for others and also to make sure that the lives that they come into contact with uh, is just a mutual benefic uh, beneficial relationship all the way around. I think that I cannot thank enough all of the people out there who are empathetic, who are sympathetic, and who understand and who acknowledge the need for frank mental health talk and for, you know, this, this whole cerebellum of just excellent resources and excellent information and Oh gosh, you know, I myself have had mental health problems for years and it's just, it's always about, you know, how people around you can engineer. And that's what I was trying to search for before when talking about the Else for Autism Foundation, the foundation that I am glad to be a part of. Yeah. Um, that's, that's how... People engineer solutions to uh, problems 
that you know everybody faces and it's always that feeling like there's this glass glass wall or there's this whole entire you know this this kind of mirage or this illusion no matter how successful you are no matter how unsuccessful you are no matter what you may find the the mirror of the the illusion of sadness the illusion of you aren't good enough you aren't worth it those illusions you need always need your warriors at at your side to combat to strike fear at the heart of these illusions and so you know nate to me is a friend of mine but he's also a little bit more than just a friend he has been very very helpful for me as i've gone through all these trying times over these years when i've become more and more reliable to face my demons and to face my mental health struggles. You know, medication has, I've taken, and I've done all these different things that I wouldn't have done years ago because of people like him and because of the support system that I have at the foundation that have helped me feel like that I'm not going to be jeopardized because I need to find a way to tell people that this is what I'm going through. Well, I want to say it's my pleasure to be your friend. And it's definitely a, a friendship that's reciprocal. Uh, you've helped me deal with my own stuff in many ways. And you know, getting to do the podcast with you is, is such a, such a fun and satisfying experience. Um, but I also want to emphasize what Merrick was saying that we're lucky to work for a foundation that places such a strong emphasis on mental health, you know, not only physical health, but mental health, which is, it's just as important for, you know, having a, a quality life and, and having well-being. And we have all these great resources at the foundation that I'm really happy Merrick um, alluded to. And I also really like that not only for treat for um, autism therapy, but mental health therapy, the foundation has such a broad approach. There's a lot of, of resources. It's not just, um, uh, talk therapy in groups, which are so valuable, but there's also an emphasis on yoga, uh, physical activity through the tennis, golf, and, and kickball programs. And just there's a big emphasis placed on well being. And I think that that's really great. Also, um, you know, Merrick pointed out um, some of the mental health issues that he's gone through and look mental health does not discriminate right it can affect mental health issues do not does not discriminate i should say these these can affect people from all backgrounds all professions even you know even a lot of uh the counselors who you work with um 
and, and I work in, in the field of psychology and mental health, and I've dealt with issues of my own. Uh, so it's important that, that just all of us recognize that we're not alone in this. And there is a cavalry that we can call upon, when it, whether it's our friends, family, or the professionals who we respect and you know, really enjoy working with. There is a support system there, and it's important to not try to go through everything by yourself. So I'd, I'd just like to switch over now to a second story I, I will present. And it's on a recently published article from Patrick Powell and colleagues at the CDC. And they examined the discrepancies between mental health care and adolescents aged 12 to 16 with autism compared to a control group consisting of that same age range. And these researchers found that compared to the control group, those with autism were more likely to have additional mental health conditions. So the likelihood of having one or more conditions was 63% in the autism group versus 28.9% uh, in the control group. And the likelihood for two or more conditions was about 42% in the autism group compared to uh, about 11% in the control group. And the most common co-occurring conditions were ADHD and anxiety. Um, one of the, so, so this is in line with what we've uh, discussed today and, and what's previously been found in research. There is still uh, a stronger likelihood for some co-occurring mental health issues with autism. And maybe we'll discuss uh, some additional reasons why that's the case, but could be related to some of the stigma, um, also just being treated differently by others. And so um, one thing that was interesting in this study is that a higher percentage of individuals with autism also receive treatment for mental health concerns. So I thought that this was um, an encouraging finding that many individuals with autism who were coping with these co-occurring symptoms were, seemed to be able to ac have access to care. And also in this study, you know, the finding that uh, there's this greater likelihood during adolescence, which is a critical time period for social and emotional development it alludes to just the importance of introducing, you know, sound mental health messages and also strategies for managing mental health during these years that can then lay down the foundation of coping skills for these individuals as they age and go through development. So, you know, typically when it comes to these co-occurring symptoms, we, spoke about it really well in the interview with Kim, uh, with Dr. Riccio, but uh, they can be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, medications, and other holistic options like mindfulness, yoga, and physical activity. So Merrick, would you like to add anything regarding co-occurring mental health symptoms in autism and what are some other beneficial strategies for managing such symptoms? Well, this is not that surprising because many symptoms that people usually trace with autism 
have relatives in fields like ADHD and OCD. You know, the whole right. thing about hyperfocus and the idea of, you know, sticking to a subject and becoming a master or an expert at it. That may sound a little bit like uh, either ADHD or OCD. Um, you know, uh, talking a mile a minute is considered to be a symptom of ADHD, but it could also be a symptom of ASD. I could talk a mile a minute about the most boring stuff, and I've and never been diagnosed. Sorry? And the most interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, well, thank you, cheerleader. I'll give you your pom-poms later. But uh, any <laughs> Any, anyways, um, so uh, I, I think I've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but, you know, things like that, you could probably go through a list of symptoms and you could be like, oh, that sort of reminds me of this. That sort of reminds me of that. And, you know, when you basically have had a high uh, occurrence rate of bullying, in your past when you don't talk the same way other people talk, when you don't, you know, do the same things other people do, um, when, when you, uh, when your conversational speech and language is different, then of course you're gonna feel anxiety talking to people or, you know, uh, being around people Especially if uh, you have, you know, stimming things going on. Like I would, I used to, when I would go to school, I used to flap my arms. I used to sing to myself. I used to do things that people would call stimming. And, you know, that kind of thing, you feel excited and you feel completely impulsive and that kind of thing, or you feel like you're out of this world. Other people may look at that and go, what's, what's wrong with this person? And so no wonder people may get anxiety when they feel like, you know, you're treating my own place, my happy place, a place of sanctuary or something that I'm very into, and you're basically destroying it. Or you're tearing it down enough to where, you know, the person emerges from all of that and is like, What's the use in feeling so excited about these things? Or what's the use in feeling happy about it when nobody else may even understand what it is that I'm happy about? So, you know, I, I, I will have to say also that one also has to look at uh, relationships, you know, with other people and especially with uh you know, getting involved in a romantic relationship. Um, I, I would say that if you probably did a poll, you would find that more people without autism uh, are in romantic relationships than people with. And, you know, sometimes you just need that one romantic relationship, that one person who you feel like is not only in your corner, she's your number one fan or he's your number one fan or they're your number one fan. And you can feel like, well, this is definitely 
I'm moving somewhere. I'm progressing somewhere. Someone who can pick you up when you're down. Someone who is more than just the best friend. And I think that, you know, with, without, if you, have, if you don't have, you know, a lot of friends, if you don't have a very, uh, a feeling like, you know, you're going to be uh, understood by your peer group, uh, it, it's just, it, it's, it's really, really, it, it's very, very simple. It, it's almost like common sense to me, you know, that this kind of thing exists. I will have to say, though, that, you know, now it's not, it's a better time than ever to fly what people would call a freak flag, you know? If you have a huge interest in video games, okay, you can find the community out there for you. You love anime, you love manga, you love, I guess, you know, fire alarms, you love watches, you love all kinds of things, okay? You can find a community out there for you. You feel misunderstood, you can find a community out there for you. You can go to wrongplanet.net, you can find numerous Facebook groups that are all uh, attended by individuals on the spectrum who seek emotional and mental support. And there are many, many people with a lot of different questions. And you can find many different sites out there where if you have a question about something, you can find it out or you can do some digging on your own. You don't have to feel like, you know, that the world is out to get you. And I also have to say that now it's a better time than ever before to actually have the diagnosis. Because of people coming out, it seems like every week to discuss about their condition and how inspirational they are and how much of a role model they are to the overall world environment. It, it should not, it, you may be seen as eccentric, as weird, as different, but I think that a good way to, to think about it is that, well, yeah, but on the other hand, that, that those differences and eccentricities propel the mind to such a unique universe that very few people can ever explore. So I think that you really have to think to yourself, you know, that even if you've had some horrible things done to you in the past, there are all kinds of groups and all kinds of people out there who will possibly even die for you if given the chance to basically make you feel like, you know, you're as much of a part of humanity as everyone else. That's really well said. I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned all of the support groups that are now available in, in person and remote. You know, that's one element of the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, we could take a positive away from is, the increase in telehealth availability and also just online support groups to help people out. So I will switch it on over to you for your human interest stories. Yeah, that would, that would actually make an interesting uh, movie, you know, where the heroes in the pandemic story or the, or the pandemic movie 
would actually have a silver lining where it's not just, you know, death and mayhem, but it's also people who are trying to seek the silver lining in the midst of despair. And, you know, through these different alternative methods and through adaptive methods that end up becoming common sense and which we all of a sudden go, oh, wow, this was with us the whole entire time. And, you know, there's maybe some benefits out of this method or, okay, okay, I'll get to my first story. All right. So my first story is tips on bullying. Bullying has usually been a big deal for individuals with autism, especially because of the deficits and socio-communicative factors, which can make them easier targets for those who campaign on making lives miserable for the socially different. I remember being bullied years ago into doing things that I shouldn't have done just to comply or to fit in with the people around me. In a blog article, Bullying and Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, How to Help Your Child that I found Gloria Ferret, V-E-R-R-E-T, R-N-3, Roman numeral 3, C-P-M, discusses ways for our authoritative figures to stop bullying before it starts. I'll go through 10 tips as to how to make sure that parents slash teachers can either prevent or stop bullying. First one, encourage out-of-classroom play. This way, everyone gets to know each other better. Without the social construct of the classroom, and it may build acceptance of individuals with differences. It may also show the human size of all who are involved. Two, don't allow the kid to bring money or valuables to school. Kids are innately more curious about the world around them, and those with more malevolent or bullying dispositions could take advantage of that curiosity to destroy, take, or mess up things that are considered valuable to the kid. Three, model bullying and good behaviors. Make sure that the child knows what a bully is and isn't, because sometimes it is hard to differentiate between someone with malicious intent and someone who genuinely wants to be friends, especially if there is a greater difficulty at understanding a person socially. Throughout my years of living, I will have to say, it has been very difficult sometimes to react to a person who is just teasing me in a jovial, in a jovial way or someone who really has it in for me. As an example, four, make sure that the student has the right communication tools to express what it is like being bullied. Someone who is nonverbal should have access to a communication tool just in case bullying has happened to them because not being able to communicate effectively otherwise will lead to greater distress. Five, encourage a good faith conversation with the one who has been bullied to let them know that you believe them. In order to encourage it, one must also tell the person that they are secure and protected. Sometimes people can feel anxiety because of the risk of telling anyone, especially if it spreads to the bully. But if the person feels protected and believed, then that could be very helpful. Six, before the bully and the bullied can make up, the bully must be confronted to acknowledge that what they were doing is wrong and to offer a sincere apology. Otherwise, there is no reason for the two to meet. Seven, if there are procedures and protocols in place to address bullying behavior, make sure to follow them. If they may have worked before, they may work again. Eight, talk to other kids about the bullying and calmly talk about what happened. Because of the authoritative nature of the person in this role and perhaps the different instinctual reactions of each child, it is up to the member of authority to make sure that the bully's influence doesn't spread further. 
Nine, if you see it happening, either recount the rules or make sure that the bully and the bully know what is going on by even stepping into the middle of the situation. Generally, a teacher who is willing to disrupt the disrupt role is not only considerate of their students, but also the classroom itself. Finally, number 10, parental involvement in the schools. Whether it be in an advisory council or greater involvement in PTA meetings, especially if it is an epidemic, there should be a good deal of communication between parents and teachers, especially about any possibility of bullying. A greater cohesive unity could help repel any apathy shown prior. So we've heard a good amount from different people about a culture deprived of bullying. What are some things you can share that can help further decline in this part of our culture? And secondly, have you ever been bullied? If so, what tactics did you do that helped or hurt the situation that you would like to share? Well, I appreciate both questions. And I want to start off by saying that I think in, in many ways, our culture uh, has improved a lot when it comes to recognizing the harmful effects of bullying on, you know, individual psyches and well-being and just being more conscious about trying to prevent this. So as far as prevention, I think the key focal point should be continuing to promote awareness. Okay. And when we talk about promoting mental health and understanding, you know, how difficult experiences, especially during childhood, whether it's, you know, psychological or physical abuse from parents, or it's psychological abuse from at the hands of bullies. These, um, unfortunately, these incidents, although of course they can be overcome, they have, they can have negative impacts on a person's psychological development. And the more we can promote that, hopefully the more we can open up the ears of children and, and adults who might become bullies and teach them instead how to become aware of this phenomenon and try to help develop empathy in these people. If they understand the serious consequences of what they're doing, then hopefully they'll think twice. Uh, they'll do more about thinking twice. So when it comes to uh, the second question, which is, have I ever been bullied? I have been bullied. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I played a lot of tennis uh, and I was very, very thin, you know, so I've been bullied over my weight, been bullied over, um, you know, my speech because I've moved around uh, to a lot of different states. So been bullied over accents that I've had and it's not fun. You know, it's, it might be fun or playful from the people who are engaging in it, but for the individual who's in a new environment, just trying to fit in, it can be really difficult. And Merrick, you highlighted this, but it can lead you to do things that you're not really proud of to try to fit in and form some kind of uh, appealing identity for yourself. And I think the most important thing to remember is that you, you always want to be yourself. Okay. Don't, it's important not to give in to the pressure that you feel from the environment around you. Chances are you have a good set of values. You have a lot to offer as a person. And so you need to take the mindset that 
it's, you don't have to make everybody pleased around you, especially people who might not have your best interests at heart. You, you want to stick to your moral compass and just try to be the best person that you can be. Um, and, and, um, you know, making your family and your true friends happy versus these, these people who don't really have your best interests at heart. You shouldn't focus on trying to be cool or interesting in their eyes. Um, so that's my, uh, my spiel on bullying. Yeah, uh, that, well, that's a great spiel. <laughs> I may uh, need a little bit of, what's it called? Uh, shoot, um, may need a little bit of a schmear. A schmear for the schmeal. No, a schmear for the spiel. Say that 10 times fast. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> That would be hilarious um, to try to do that. No, I cannot do that. So uh, anyways, on to story number two about uh, Russell Lehman, A Life in Progress. I would like to introduce our audience to autism and mental health self-advocate, poet, and international speaker, Russell Lehman. And no, he isn't here, but he's with us in spirit on this podcast. Born in Nevada, Russell Lehman had a difficult life growing up. While he did well in school, there were all kinds of invisible disabilities that shook his world. Because he has autism, his interest in socio-communication with others and his deficits within him caused him to be a target of bullying and mockery. And the sensitivity to sounds was also affected. It led him to take his first steps into a cave of despair, which combined with his OCD, depression, and senses of panic and dread, caused him to sink into a nonverbal stupor when he got admitted to, to a psychiatric hospital at the age of 12. From then on, he became a completely dormant soul lost within his cave. Even when he got out of the hospital and excelled at whatever he put his mind to, the spark that would have let his self-expression was completely gone. At least shortly after he left the hospital, he would receive the autism diagnosis, but that would have little to do with all the challenges that he would face. There have been days where he didn't change a thing about himself, hardly ate, just slept, hardly even leaving his own room. The first sign of change was when he discovered poetry and wrote his first book in 2011 called Inside Out, Stories of an Autistic Mind. It was that light in the darkness that caused him to open up more and more about his mental struggles, about his autism, who he really is and why it matters. Since then, he has been a VIP for many agencies and organizations including the Autism Society of America and the Nevada Governor's Council of People with Developmental Disabilities and graduated from MIT or the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Leadership and a Digital Age course. So what piece of advice would Russell Lehman give to anyone who wants to understand them? What you do not see is much more important than what you do see. All information regarding this individual will be on our show notes. Nate, one tip I would give to people suffering from mental health problems, especially those with socio-communication deficits, is to find a creative outlet. What tips would you give to those kinds of people? Or if you want, can you discuss how important a creative outlet is to someone with autism and mental health problems? You can also discuss both. It's a great point you make, Merrick, and also appreciate you highlighting Russell Lehman. It's a very inspirational story. So the creative outlet is so important. Um, and 
a big reason for this is because when we're in a state of mental health distress, it can be extremely difficult to live in the present moment and to take our minds off of our anxious thoughts or just the various issues that we're going through. And so when we can find that one thing that we love doing and we can get lost in, it can really help to alleviate the distress that we're going through. It gives our minds a break. It gives us something that we enjoy and basically can, can just stimulate us in a positive way. And when it comes to, to a creative outlet, that can really be anything. It can be a sport, it can be art, music, video gaming, socializing with others. Um, and again, if social communi uh, communication deficits are present, it doesn't have to be social, right? It can be something that's on your own, uh, artistic or writing. And um, I would just encourage everybody to find that one thing or multiple things that you can do where, where you just feel like you're in your element and you could, you could get lost in something and, and take your mind off of the stresses of the world for a couple minutes. All right. And thank you for that answer. Because yes, a creative outlet is very, very, very important. But I've written a lot of different poems and song lyrics, a good amount of them focusing on mental health. And I will definitely promote that in the show notes. It's terrific. That has been my creative outlet to move me through many tough times when I felt like I needed a neutral voice to address the, these thoughts of mine. And I needed a way to not only feel like it's a creative outlet, but it's an outlet that can be shared with the world. I'll give all of our listeners a tennis lesson as well. Okay. First <laughs> lesson of tennis, duck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or else the ball will hit you. Class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs> You may lose the game, but at least the ball won't hit you. <laughs> All right. So before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in June, which is not only the month of my birthday, but the 18th is Autistic Pride Day. With some more coverage on us, and the autistic community in general. For... Or... I wish that I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air so high Oh, like a butterfly A moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide
Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I fly into the air so high Oh, like a butterfly Like a bird, I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh like a butterfly I'll fly into the air I'm a butterfly